galaxies, planets, the ecliptic, nebulae, light year, focal length, aperture, APO, equatorial mount, magnification, Barlow lens. These terms are all part of the language of astronomy. And today, Brian Folder from OPT joins again to help us speak the language of astronomy. We're going to talk about some of these terms. Many of them you might have heard, and some of them maybe not. The language of astronomy is this week's episode, so let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Okay, so Brian, today we had this, I guess it was Dustin's idea, wasn't it, to, yeah. <laughs> to do this? <laughs> Somehow <laughs> always Dustin's idea. <laughs> I, why do, I, what does that say about us? We just do Dustin's ideas. But it was a good <laughs> idea. It was a nice idea. What he, he thought that because Brian, who works at OPT, we talked, he was with us last week, um, does the OPT University, that it'd be kind of a good, and we just did that beginning astronomy uh, episode, that it might be a good idea to go over some vocabulary, to learn about some of the terms that are used and maybe help define some of these things, because a lot of stuff can be confusing, especially if you're a beginner. And I will bet you that you advanced amateurs listening to this podcast right now aren't going to know some of the stuff we're talking about. So we'll be able to maybe give you guys something you haven't heard before too, right? <laughs> so Brian, you've got this organ. You gave me this great list and I'm looking at it now and you have it broken up into different, uh, different categories like celestial object event terms and celestial navigation terms, observing terms and telescope gear specific terms. Where do you think we should start? And do you want to just do each section and get through as many of these as we can? Um, yeah. or, Okay. Yeah, let's let's just go go for uh, the first one, I guess. So, like the celestial objects and events. I think those are, you know, those are at least universal, whether you're doing visual or imaging. So, okay, all right. Well, I tell you what, I will read them out because I won't have much of a job if I don't. And, and then <laughs> you can talk about what you think. And if I've got anything to add, I will. Um, sure. But the but the first one on your list is what is a deep sky object versus a solar system, or a planetary object? Yeah, so the way I would just categorize that is, is basically solar system and planetary objects, kind of self-explanatory in that I would categorize that as anything that's happening within the solar system. So, you know, we're talking about our moon, we're talking about the other planets, we're talking about the sun, and then we're also even talking about some other uh, objects like comets. So anything within the solar system. So, yes, they would be, and by solar system, we're defining that as something really inclusive, including the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud, things like that, which is the home of where many of these ob cometary objects um, originate. So, yeah. All right. And what about a deep sky object? What makes a deep sky object a deep sky object? Yeah, deep sky object is like kind of a catch-all term for anything beyond the solar system that's like a celestial object, like nebulae. Um, galaxies, star clusters, double stars, etc. Um, there's a kind of a longer list, but that's the the general list. <laughs> star cluster. So things that would be outside of our solar system might even be within our own galaxy. Things like the Pleiades uh, and the Orion Nebula complex. Things like that would be inside our galaxy, but also other things like the Andromeda galaxy, which is a outside of our galaxy at least for now. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now. Well, what about Oumuamua? Is that a planet? Is that a solar system object or a deep sky object? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think Tony, you're gonna you stumped me on this one. Okay. So yeah, it could be. We don't know what Oumuamua is, but for those of you who don't haven't heard about it, it's this long cylindrical looking thing that people saw zooming out of our solar system a couple years ago, back in 2017. 
And we didn't know what it was. It, the, the, the path of it didn't act like an asteroid, and the shape of it was surely nothing like anything we had seen before. It, wasn't a, it was determined not to be a comet, so there was no outgassing, and its trajectory was such, and this is the kicker, the trajectory was such that the, it didn't explain the path uh, of outgassing or cometary material coming out of it could not explain the trajectory that we observed. So a lot of big question marks about that object, what exactly it is. But we do have things that come outside of our solar system and go into our solar system, and those would be trans-solar system objects, I guess we call those. <laughs> okay, well, the next on the list is nebula. What's a nebula? So a nebula, uh, to my understanding, and this is probably a very elementary definition, but it's just like a cloud of dust or gas um, in deep space. <laughs> That's probably the simplest Just a fuzzy, way yeah, a fuzzy object. Yeah. And in, fa and in fact, um, for many, many years, up until the time of Edwin Hubble, um, a lot of the fuzzy things that turned out to be galaxies were called nebula. The Orion, uh, the Andromeda galaxy used to be called the Orion Nebula. Because yeah, and I... I think they still call like Bode's Nebula, even though it's a galaxy, they call it Bode's Nebula sometime, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea of a galaxy is only about a hundred or so years old. Um, isn't it amazing to think about though, that we, <laughs> just a hundred years ago, we didn't really even know if there were other galaxies in the universe, right? We thought we might've been it. We might be in the only galaxy in the universe. That's what astronomers actually thought. And it wasn't until Hubble came along in 1910 or something like that to, to, to tell us otherwise, but that's amazing for me to think about. Yeah, it really is. It really puts it into perspective about, you know, how far advanced we are just on the, you know, timeline of humanity. If we're only understanding that within the last hundred years, <laughs> I know what's, what's next to come. And I've said yeah. this before, we, we are definitely in the golden age of astronomy because we are exponentially increasing our knowledge at a rate that's ex well, exponential. Um, it's just crazy. All right. What about a galaxy? So yeah, a galaxy, I would probably try to define that as like a, uh, a large system of stars that orbit around a central core. And uh, they're all kind of grouped together in this large structure that's a galaxy. There's so many different types of galaxies that it's almost hard to pinpoint like a definition for yeah, just one particular. Yeah. Of those things. yeah, so that's that's my my elementary definition. <laughs> and fun fact, most astronomers currently believe that almost every galaxy out there has at its core a supermassive black hole that's driving its rotation. So, or among other things, but that is, they, they, almost every galaxy has a black hole at the center. Yeah. So star clusters. Star clusters, it's almost similar to the definition of a galaxy, but in that there's no necessarily a core per se. They're just kind of clustered together. There's two types of star clusters. There's open clusters, which are like a bunch of stars kind of randomly assorted together. And then there's globular clusters, which are uh, a bunch of stars that are kind of concentric to a, a center point or whatnot. Kind of looks like almost like a, a shotgun blast. <laughs> That's what I compare it to. It's sort of loosely gravitationally bound. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then there's the tighter ones, the, the, the globular clusters that are, you know, are much more gravitationally bound. Definitely. Okay. Uh, so what about double star? Yeah, double star. Um, basically, it's just two stars that are really close to each other. I think, and Tony, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think a double star differentiates itself from a binary star and that a binary star is like two stars that are gravitationally bound to each other, whereas a double star could just be two stars that really appear very closely in the sky, but maybe thousands of light years apart. Yes, that's an important distinction. Um, when you look through a telescope at a that something that might be classified in a star atlas as a double star, it could be an actual double star system, a binary system, where they're actually rotating around each other gravitationally, or they could just be apparent binaries, right? Or apparent double stars, where one star... Uh, is actually much further away than another. An example of that, I think Alcor and Mizar, right, in the Big Dipper, mm -hmm. are apparent. They're not really close to each other, but they look really close to each other in the telescope. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Now this next term. Okay. I will, we'll go ahead and talk about, it, but this gets me. I figured I, this thing always, it, it just seems to me pedantic, mostly because I often make this mistake, right? What's the difference between a constellation and an asterism? <laughs> now I'm the guy that you always hear at a planetarium show say, if you look at the constellation, the big dipper, and you go and you follow these stars and you can go find the North star over here in the constellation of the little dipper, right? I, it's not, I get it. An actual, <laughs> these aren't actual constellations. So what's the difference? Yeah, no, I agree. It is a little pedantic, but basically the difference is a constellation is uh, a group of stars that were kind of, chosen in mythology to have, you know, representations as, I don't know, animals and, and all sorts of different shapes. Whereas an asterism, it's kind of just like a group of stars that kind of look like something, but they may also make up a larger constellation, but they're just sort of on their own. You know, they just kind of make their own shape. For example, like Orion's belt is an asterism that falls within the constellation of Orion, which is a much larger uh, set of stars altogether. And the same with what we just talked about. The Big Dipper yep. is seven stars that are grouped to look like a dipper as part of a much larger constellation of Ursa Major the Bear. But the, I don't know, I, I, I get corrected on it all the time. And all I do is I just do that little emoji face where the eyes narrow, you know? <laughs> and it's... it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> are you gonna be are you gonna be the asterism Nazi? Is that what this is gonna be right now? Because you know, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, I'm in your camp too. I'm always like, yeah, look at, over in the constellation Big Dipper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a freaking so. just say it. It's a group of stars. Well, okay, it's a group of stars within a bigger group of stars. But what's a constellation? It's a group of stars. So right. I mean, it, it's just a, it's a very specific group of stars, and that applies to both things. Yes, it's an asterism. I mean, the very well, it's just uh, one of those things that, that I guess I get it. It's it's technically incorrect to call it that, but that is a difference. And, and if you're getting into it, if you go to a star party and you meet a bunch of harumphers out there, they're going to be, they're, you're going to be encountering them if you don't, if you make this mistake. So just <laughs> stand strong, people. You know what, too? Like um, we have the Big Dipper and we have the Little Dipper, but I've even called, <laughs> I've even called the Pleiades the Mini Dipper because that's what it looks like. To it me, does so. to, to just a normal person. It just never yeah. knows, doesn't know anything about this guy. Is that because you always get that question, don't you? Is that the Little Dipper up there? You know? <laughs> yep. Yep. Like, no, that's the it's that's the, the Pleiades, dipper. but it, you know, it does look kind of like a dipper, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's an open star cluster. That's an example of an open star cluster. Mm -hmm. So. Um, okay. Um, all right. What's a conjunction? Now we're getting into it. What's a conjunction? Conjunction. That's a, basically a rough alignment of two or more celestial bodies. Generally, I think in, doesn't even have to be in our solar system. It can be, uh, with stars and other things like that. But generally I think a lot of conjunctions that are, you know, most talked about are like of like the moon and Saturn or Saturn and Jupiter, like we just had. So it's just kind of a, a that was amazing. Alignment. Wasn't it? When those got really close together, when was that? That was November, wasn't it? December. It was, yeah. It was December. Yeah. It was just last month. So yeah, it was yeah, incredible. Was yeah. And you can see them sometimes all in the same eyepiece view. So it's really, yeah. So that's a conjunction. Well, what about an occultation then? So an occultation is a little different. Um, basically, where one body passes in front of or behind another. So, you know, let's say the uh, moon was in front of Mars or Mars passed behind the moon, rather. Um, that's an occultation. You know, they do occultation timings, for example. That's something that amateur astronomers can do to help understand the sizes of things like planets and stuff that occult a distant star. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and all these kinds of – these are activities that an amateur can do um, – when you when you learn about them some of the most incredible though were like when saturn goes grazes the moon limb or something i love those pictures oh yeah it's incredible i've seen seen those time lapses where saturn is slowly appearing from behind the moon it's just incredible <laughs> yeah but this is also very closely related an occultation is to the next term we have which is a transit what's a transit and what's the difference between the two 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so basically, transit, from my understanding, is when one small body passes in front of a much larger body. So like, you know, when Venus or Mercury transits the sun, those planets are passing in front of the sun and they just appear as tiny little dots on the sun's surface because it's so much bigger. Um, so, yeah. And, and an occult and an occultation would be the inverse of that or the reverse of that right. where something big moves uh, in front of something smaller like a planet right. moving in front of a distant background star. And it's worth noting that these transits are incredibly important now because astronomers can measure to a very high degree the dip in brightness of a very distant star when a planet that might be in orbit around that star passes between us and the star. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny amount of dip in brightness. But when it does, I mean, imagine looking at the planet Venus as it goes across the sun as Brian just said, imagine that being able to measure the sun dimming down uh, in brightness as that happens. That's the kind of difference we're talking about here. And the telescopes have gotten good enough and CCDs have gotten more, uh, the photometric accuracy has gotten such that we can detect that brightness. It's something like a hundredth of a percent of a dip, right? But we can see that now. And you can see it from the ground. Um, the whole the whole study of exoplanets began with the discovery of a of an exo of one of the first hot Jupiters to pass in front of a star from the ground using telescopes not too dissimilar to what you get now these, these days from Celestron, for example. So these are the uh, transits are incredibly important scientifically because it's the main way we find one of the main ways. There's two. There's several, but it's one of the main ways we find planets around other stars uh, using transits. The Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite that's in orbit right now is finding them. Uh, Kepler before it, and a, just a whole host of ground-based observatories do it too now. So that's a transit. Okay, you want to talk about what eclipses are? This is our last term for celestial objects and events. Yeah. What's an eclipse? So an eclipse is when uh, two bodies of apparently equal size um, align so that you know, one is completely blocking out the other. Um, so it's it's not an occultation. It's not a transit. It's kind of like the Goldilocks version of that in terms of just right. And it's just right, the, the right size to block out that object behind it. Yeah, the earth and the sun, I mean, the moon and the sun just happen to have the same apparent size from the ground, a half a degree. And a half a degree is if you took your thumb and, and held it out at arm's length, that's about a half a degree. And both the moon and the sun are very, very close to that apparent size. And by apparent, I mean that's the way it looks to us. It's not their actual sizes. Um, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but the Earth, I think it's the only place where you could see a total solar eclipse in the solar system. Is that right? There... Yeah, I think I think that's right. I, I think that's right, at least in terms of planets. I, I maybe remember reading something where like some like moon of Saturn, if it's blocked out by another moon, could have a, a equal eclipse effect. But still, yeah. from from the Earth, it's by far the best because it's the biggest. And we all know, yeah, they're just amazing. Both lunar and solar eclipses um, happen. Uh, lunar. What's the, what's the difference between a lunar eclipse and a solar eclipse? Tell us that. Yeah, that's a good one. So a solar eclipse, at least a total solar eclipse, is when um, the moon passes in between the Earth and the sun and completely blocks out the sun. Um, so it's it's crazy. I mean, it'll be broad daylight, and then all of a sudden the moon is completely blocking out the sun. A lunar eclipse is is kind of the opposite in the that the Earth uh, is in between the sun and the moon, and therefore uh, the Earth's shadow is cast on the moon and it can actually turn the moon red due to all the atmospheric uh, refraction happening from the Earth's atmosphere. And if you know any flat earthers, <clears throat> what you should do is go grab them during a lunar eclipse <clears throat> and show them that. Say, you see that curve uh, on the moon? That's the Earth. Why is it like that? If the well, Earth the, is flat, you know the Earth and, is obviously a disc, Tony. That's that's. Why. Oh, is that the answer? Oh, is it <laughs> obviously? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Yeah, and it's not about objective evidence anyway. So you're probably not going to meet any uh, 
I think I think flat earthers actually hide during eclipses because they don't want to be approached. <laughs> That's what I think. Okay, so so let's let's move on to some so now these terms, these celestial navigation terms that you have. I learned these. I'm an avid sailor, and I knew them already when I became when I started sailing. But I learned these when I worked in a planetarium in high school. What all of these different uh, terms meant, and I was very grateful for those. Uh, so uh, let's start with um, the celestial sphere. What do we mean by a celestial sphere? Is the yeah. universe a sphere? <laughs> <laughs> well, Tony, maybe you can help me out here. But my understanding <laughs> is the celestial sphere is like it's an imaginary sphere that extends beyond the Earth's surface out into space. And it's kind of how um, we measure uh, positions in the sky. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you can imagine that the surface of the Earth extended out into space, you know, and the way it appears to us when we look up, it looks like a big dome. It just does. I mean, that's just what the sky is not a big dome, but that's what it looks like. We have a horizon all around us. And when we look up, it looks like we're looking up into a dome of stars. And so if you imagine that that dome is actually a sphere, which is basically take the Earth and you expand it outward to some arbitrary imaginary distance, um, you've got the celestial sphere. That's all that means. It's a, it's just um, reflective of the fact that it looks like a dome and that you, that you can use angular geometry to measure things in it. You know, things like arc minutes and degrees and, and all of this stuff can be used. Spherical geometry can be used uh, against the sphere uh, accurately to plot, um, to plot, whatever you're looking at. So um, things like arc seconds, which we'll get to, and things like that are all angular measurements. And so because we live on a sphere uh, or an oblate spheroid, and we can extend that and, and, and do the geometry against the night sky as if it were a sphere, even though it really isn't. Okay. Although, you know, maybe it is an actual sphere. We don't know, right? It's expanding. The universe we is. And we know that we say the geometry of space-time is flat, but that's a different meaning than the actual shape of the universe. It's some, the, the celestial horizon, the universal horizon might, I'm starting to hurt my head here thinking about this, but I don't, it's probably not spherical because it has no center, right? You can't call any part of the universe, the center of the universe, which a sphere implies. So, um, there is an observable universe, though, that is that does have a radius of 47 billion light years. But is it actually spherical? If you go there, what are you going to see? You're probably going to see another sphere, right? So it's <laughs> it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to think about that into as a pure sphere. So I guess we shouldn't do that. But going on that theme. Imagining that the Earth is a sphere and we extend everything out, this curved surface out into the into the heavens, we get the celestial equator, right? Yep. Go ahead. Yeah, the celestial. <laughs> sorry, the celestial equator is uh, is um, basically yeah, it's just that it's just the equator of the Earth extended out into space. And it's kind of cool because, uh, you know, if there are stars along the celestial equator, they'll appear at the same place every night. So, yeah, That's right. Um, okay, how about the celestial? Okay, celestial. And that goes along with, uh, we could just do this all, all in one big thing. So celestial equator, celestial poles. Um, what, and that, that, what's the celestial pole? Yeah, the celestial pole is um, basically an extension of the Earth's north and south poles. So if you just imagine the axis upon which Earth spins around and extend that out into space, um, then you get the celestial poles. And the celestial poles are really important for uh, at least, yeah, all kinds of astronomy because it helps you polar align your telescope. You've probably heard that term if you just got a telescope. Um, polar alignment is really important for equatorial mounts uh, and telescopes, so you can actually um, track the movement of the Earth's uh, or counteract the Earth's rotation um, and track the night sky. Yeah, we're lucky to have one star that's kind of close to the North Pole. That would be Polaris. But there's not really. Is there anything pointing toward the South Pole that you can like point to and say that's the Southern Star? 
There's the constellation Octans, but that's a, that's not really uh, as close to the celestial pole in the southern hemisphere as as Polaris is in the north. It's kind of offset. So we're really lucky in the northern hemisphere to have a pole star. <laughs> yeah, and we won't have it for long. Uh, the Earth precesses; it wobbles like a top. So. I think it goes around once every 25,000 years or something. So right now we'll be passing. We just happen to be passing through the point where Polaris is the closest. It's not exactly north, but it's pretty darn close. All the other stars can uh, sort of go around it. Um, what? Did, what? Can you talk a little bit about um, star trails? If you if you pointed a camera at the North Star, what would you see? Yeah. So if you pointed a camera at the North Star, you'd see that everything appears to rotate around it. So the stars, including the North Star, Polaris, and all the stars nearby in that area around the North Celestial Pole, they would appear to to kind of move very, very slowly and rotate around that point very, very slowly. Whereas all the other stars a little bit farther away, farther south, uh, would appear to rotate much more rapidly. So you kind of get this concentric ring effect around the celestial pole if you were to take long exposures with your camera yeah and it's really a beautiful effect and it's something really easy to do with basic equipment if you've just got you don't even need a mount you just can set a camera up on a rock and maybe balance it so that it just points to the north the general area of the north and open the shutter man you'll see this right is it that's i mean that's why i always do it so you don't need to spend a lot of time and a lot of equipment to see this effect. It's really amazing. You don't need any clock drive, any mount. Just yeah, no just tripod point. either. No tripod. Just like I rest it up against your car hood and and go for it. Right. As long as you got <laughs> the Polaris in the field of view, you'll see something. And you don't need to. You don't need to even have it open for very long to see the effect. You could maybe do three or four minutes. And you'll start to see star trails or arcs, um, as Brian just said, across each one. So cool. Yeah. All right. How about so? This is kind of touching on what I was talking about briefly with um, celestial or spherical coordinates. We got degrees, arc minutes, and arc seconds. You can talk about what those are. Right. Yeah. So degrees are basically, you know, if we can imagine that celestial sphere again, you know, if you're measuring from a very flat horizon and looking then straight up, you would have ninety degrees of angular arc. So that would be, you know, yeah, 90 degrees. And then arc minutes um, fit within degrees every for every 60 arc minutes, there's one degree. So um, basically, yeah, the arc minutes fit inside degrees and can kind of break up degrees into smaller portions. I like to think of degrees as like, <laughs> this is a very elementary way of thinking about it, but I like to think of degrees like hours and arc minutes are minutes. There's 60 arc minutes in an hour. And then there's also arc seconds. So there's 60 arc seconds, seconds in a minute um, as well. So there's, yeah, 60 arc seconds in an arc minute. So it gets up, breaks up even farther uh, into smaller and smaller portions. And arc minutes are so incredibly small, but arc seconds are even smaller. Um, I read this crazy fact that kind of blew my mind the other day. An arc second is approximately the angle of, it would be the equivalent of trying to resolve a dime, a US dime coin, uh, which is about 18 millimeters across from a distance of about two and a half miles or four kilometers away, which was like mind blown <laughs> to me. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, and, of course, with telescopes that most of us use now, uh, we see things, fields of view in arc seconds um, easily. You know, that's so uh, the, the fields of view, the magnifications that we can achieve um, would easily allow us to see things just a few arc seconds. So so what is a zenith? So, yeah, that, that point that we were talking about just a minute ago where you're looking straight up, and I mean literally straight up as as perfectly straight up as you can get um, in all directions, it would be the zenith. Um, so, you know, you have your horizons on either side of you if you're doing a 180 degree spin. If you just looked straight up 90 degrees or, yeah, 90 degrees vertical, then that would be the zenith. Yeah, it's just wherever the point directly over your head, wherever you're standing. Yep. Um, okay, uh, now this, I love this one, the ecliptic. 
This is a very useful term to know. It um, is. What, what is the ecliptic? So the ecliptic, uh, from my understanding anyway, is the, it's kind of the disk or apparent disk upon which all of the planets in the solar system orbit on. So it's kind of like that, that plane rather is the word I'm looking for. It's that plane in which all the planets uh, orbit around and it's kind of this, yeah, flat plane. So you can kind of look at uh, the ecliptic and see, you know, oh, there's Jupiter, there's Mars, there's Saturn, et cetera. And in the night sky, when you're actually looking up at the planets, let's say, you know, two or three planets are out, you'll see that they all kind of fall along this rough plane or line called the ecliptic. So yeah, from east to west, usually it's an arc. Yeah, right. Um, right. It's just the it's and and from our perspective, another way of thinking of the ecliptic is that it is the path that the sun, moon, and the planets follow um, across our sky, and it's inclined a bit depending on the season because the Earth is tilted on its axis by twenty three and third degrees. So, when well, if you took the celestial equator and and extended it out into space. It would be offset by the amount that the Earth is tilted to the celestial or to the solar, the plane of the solar system, like what you said. The plane of the solar system isn't completely flat. I mean, the planets kind of go up and down just a little bit, a couple degrees here and there, but not much, right? It's a pretty it's a pretty flat disk uh, for just using your eyes and 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 estimating where things are. So it's really helpful to know that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, but it follows the path of the ecliptic and the moon is a little different though in the sense that it is kind of inclined a little bit in its orbit with respect to our tilt so sometimes the moon can get off of the ecliptic a little bit in fact it kind of is right now uh kind of wonky off the ecliptic i noticed that even though the sun is kind of low in the sky because it's january uh the moon's kind of high right now uh up in the up in the horizon because of the path of its orbit so the moon can kind of vary a little bit, but it's still more or less the same region of the sky. And certainly all the planets follow that um, as well. So it's really helpful to learn about what the ecliptic is. Yeah. Okay. Now this one, I, I've actually forgotten. What's oh, the, Maybe I remember. What's the meridian? So the meridian um, is like an imaginary line that goes from the north all the way overhead through the zenith to the south and it splits the sky in half. So yeah, it just splits your sky in half. It's important to differentiate. Yeah, it's one of those relative things, kind of like zenith, right? It, yeah. it passes through the zenith wherever your wherever your um, zenith is on earth. Um, but that would be a line that goes from directly to, from horizon to horizon. It doesn't even matter what cardinal point, right? You can just anywhere you can draw a meridian but i think is a, it is the north there is a to the is, south oh is it oh yeah okay that well that would be is that called the prime meridian or is that oh that's a good question i think that's I, I think the one that is from north south is the prime meridian but i don't know i'm, I'm that's why i forgot what the meridian was actually so <laughs> i'm just talking right now that's okay um, yeah so, see you advanced astronomers. You, I bet you learned something on that one right there. <laughs> uh, they're going, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> right? They're like, wow, these guys don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about meridians, man? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> okay, I like this one. Light year and an yeah. astronomical unit. Let's talk about all these together. Light year, astronomical unit. There's also a parsec. There's a megaparsec. What are all these? They're distances of, uh, yeah, measurements of distance. So um, the light year in particular is how far light can travel in one year. That's pretty much as simple as you can put it. In a However, vacuum. that's in a vacuum, yeah. And that distance is just incredibly far. I mean, the, the way I like to put it in perspective for people, you know, we say that light travels 186,000 miles per second. Okay, but what does that actually really mean? Well, to put it in perspective, that means that light can go around the earth, all around the earth, two and a half times every second. <laughs> That's the speed it's traveling at. <laughs> and then and then think about that over the course of a year. And that's how far a light year is. Yeah. And the uh, what's the other one? Oh, astronomical unit. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, astronomical unit is um, it's the distance from the Earth to the Sun, and I think that that fluctuates slightly. So, how do they calculate that, Tony? I think it's probably a mean. It's just probably some mean distance from the sun, which is roughly 93 million miles. So it's just it's more or less arbitrary anyway. But it's convenient because you don't want to, you know, the number you don't want to say 93 million miles and then multiply that by how far away the Mars is, which is some multiple of that, and then just use all use all these millions and zeros. You can just say, well, it's two astronomical units away, or you know. A, Jupiter is however many astronomical units away it is. Um, you can use numbers like three or four or five AU instead of, um, you know, light years. It's just more convenient is all. Um, yeah. And the same, it's the same truth with a parsec. A parsec is different from a light year by about a factor of three. So um, it's just, you know, you can, when you're talking about really far away galaxies, you know, on the orders of billions of light years away, you can talk about it in mega or millions of parsecs away. It's just slightly powers of 10 are slightly different. So all of these are, are um, basically based on the, the two that you've pointed out here, which is light year, distance light, light travels in a year. A parsec is about three times more than that, a little bit more. Uh, and an astronomical unit is just a distance, distance between us and the sun. And it's just convenient when you're talking about solar systems to use that unit. Oh, that, that hot Jupiter is about 5 AU away from its host star. You know, it's just yep. more convenient. That's all. For sure. So, Tony, do you want to go to the, the telescope gear next? If you do, I will follow you, man. I think sure. so, because uh, I would love to get some some of these telescope gear-specific terms, because uh, I think a lot of beginners can benefit from that. Go, man. Okay, so on this list, we have telescope, mount, and eyepiece. So I've heard all these terms used interchangeably. I've heard uh, you know eyepieces called lenses. I've heard mounts called tripods just to like dispel what they actually are. The telescope is kind of self-explanatory. You probably know what that is, but the mount is uh, the piece of equipment that the telescope is riding on top of. And it's kind of in between the telescope and the tripod. The tripod is kind of part of the mount, but really the mount is like its own head in a way. And that lets you point the telescope in a bunch of different directions. It's not just, just a tripod. It's, it's kind of like, the ball head in photography world of uh, of a yeah for a telescope. And there's um, different and, kinds too, right? Yeah, there are different kinds. There's there's altazimuth mounts, there's equatorial mounts, and then there's also kind of hybrids between the two. Yeah, so so it's not entirely correct to say that when you have a mount uh, with fork arms and a clock drive and a tripod, the whole thing. The mount part is just the part that holds the tube and counter rotates from the earth, right? That's the mount part. Right. What you mount it on could be anything from a tripod to a concrete pier, pier um, your car hood, you know, whatever I guess, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. That's a good distinction. Yep. Um. All right, I'll just let you we, go. So, so yeah, you want to talk about eyepieces now? What? Yeah, eyepieces are you know the pieces of of I don't even know what you call it. It's like a little barrel that slips into the end of the telescope and lets you look through it. And each eyepiece has either glass, hopefully glass, but sometimes plastic lenses <laughs> uh, in them. And uh, yeah, they're they're basically what help bring the light to focus so that you can actually observe what the telescope is uh, uh, magnifying. Right. While we're on this topic, and I don't see it in your list of things to cover later, why don't we talk about magnification then? Why we got, we've got telescopes, mount, and eyepieces. What is, or do you want to do aperture, focal length, and focal ratio first, and then talk about magnification? Yeah, because I think they're all tied together. Right? Yeah, but we kind of need all that, don't we? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good, uh, good idea, though. Okay, so aperture... Aperture is the diameter of the objective lens or mirror on a telescope. And what I mean by objective is it's the largest optical component, whether that's in the front of the telescope or in the back, sometimes like Newtonians. Um, aperture is just the diameter of how much uh, light gathering power it can have. So, you know, you can have a telescope of 
four inches of aperture versus eight inches of aperture. And because of its kind of an inverse square law, the eight inch aperture telescope will have four times the light gathering power of a four inch aperture telescope. Um, and then focal length, focal length is just the distance from the aperture to the point in which light focuses. So that's usually measured in millimeters. Um, so, you know, you can have a telescope that has a focal length of a thousand millimeters or even 500 millimeters or 2000 millimeters. And basically focal length, which we'll get to in a minute, directly ties to magnification. The longer the focal length, the more zoomed in your view is going to appear. Um, so yeah. And then focal ratio is just the uh, focal length divided by the aperture. Um, so you take, you know, your focal length and you got to convert it to the same units, but you know, let's say you have a 1000 millimeter focal length telescope that has an aperture of 200 millimeters, then you have a focal ratio of five and it's just expressed as F5. So you have an F5 scope, that means your focal ratio is five. And what does that, what do the numbers mean? What's the difference between a F5 telescope and an F7 telescope? Or right. an F2, which I can't believe you can buy now. <laughs> uh, F2 yeah. telescope to an F5. <laughs> what, what makes it right. different? Yeah, so if it basically it's, it's determining how fast or how slow that focal ratio is. And um, faster telescopes can, faster focal ratios can gather light quicker. And then slower focal ratios can gather light slower, but they have the added benefit of having more magnification. So like a fast, a fast telescope like F2 or F3 is going to be really great at gathering light quickly, but it's also going to be a really wide field of view, generally speaking. Um, wide field of view, a, low magnification, tiny objects in the, you know, uh, yeah. on your pixel scale or whatever you want to call it. Um, <clears throat> your resolution element it would be it would be small and um and yeah so uh, what are let's talk real, real briefly about the advantages of fast versus slow what does a fast telescope get me versus what a slow one gets me and f i can't believe i'm saying f5 is slow now but but let's say f, uh f uh, most telescopes are like f5 right i mean they're between f5 and f7 Right? Am I yeah, right in that, that ballpark. Yeah. All right. So let's just let's, let's stay there. Let's get away from those F2s. Um, F5, what, what, what does an F5 get me versus, say, something like maybe a Celestron or SCT or something would be a longer focal length, uh, maybe F7, something like that. What would it get me? Right. So uh, generally speaking, I think focal ratio is a lot more important for talking about photography and astrophotography. Um, so for astrophotography, specifically for deep sky anyway, um, a faster focal ratio, like I said, will, will be able to gather light faster and therefore your exposure times can be shorter uh, as a result. So if you take a, let's say you have an F5.6 telescope and then you have an F8 telescope, that F5.6 telescope can gather light twice as fast as the F8 so therefore you only need to take half the total exposure length um, compared to the F8 telescope. So you know where you have a two minute exposure on your F8 scope, it would only be a one minute exposure on your F5.6 scope. And, and again, we're talking and in, in the inherent magnification levels on both of those would be different uh, for the same given observing uh, eyepiece, for example, let's say. Uh, you put the same eyepiece in a F5, you're going to see a wider field of view, lower magnification than if you put it in a F7 telescope. And uh, you'll get a slightly higher magnification just because the focal lengths are, are different. So... Yeah. Um, so, which brings us to now, I think, we can talk about magnification, right? Totally. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up one more point, too. Like, okay. You know, it may sound like, you know, a fast focal ratio telescope is always better in that it can gather light quicker. It's not necessarily always the case. You know, uh, a fast telescope is great for observing uh, faint objects like deep sky objects like galaxies and nebulae. But, you know, a slow focal ratio telescope like F10, for example, is really, really good at observing um, details like on the planets and the moon. So 
they both have their strong suits and, you know, it depends on what you're trying to do uh, to decide on whether you want a fast or a slow focal ratio telescope. That's true. And whether you're a visual or a, an, a visual astronomer or an imager, uh, most everybody's an imager now. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm becoming a bit of a dinosaur, but I can tell you, <laughs> no. I like to use as an observer, um, the highest magnification I can get away with, with my given system and observing conditions because I, my eyes are getting older and I need the increased, uh, image size basically. So I can have more resolution elements to, to cover on a uh, let's say Jupiter, for example. So um, Jupiter will look a lot better at a given, at a higher magnification if the night is clear because um, it's, you know, I can see more detail and it all comes down to resolution elements. If you've got a wide, wide field of view, the Andromeda galaxy, I'm sorry, the Orion Nebula, for example, might look like, depending on how wide, how fast your telescope is, you might just see it as a very tiny smudge in your overall image. It might just be a tiny little, segment, you know, you might see a little tiny little fuzzy thing in part of your image. Um, whereas if you had a faster scope, that would look larger, physically larger on your image plane, and you would see more detail from it. Um, so you need to balance all of this stuff. And we'll get to maybe some of this stuff like a Barlow and a telecompressor and all this in a minute, but you play with it. Those are things that let you play with this focal ratio just a little bit. And it's important, as we've just talked about, for, for the field of view that you see, the amount of detail that you can get, um, but it, and it's all tied into magnification. Even cameras have a magnification, um, you know, if you, if, even if you're not using an eyepiece. So you are operating at some given magnification. Am I right, um, Brian, what about this? I mean, we, even though you don't have an eyepiece in your F5 telescope, you are operating at a certain magnification, right? Totally. Yeah. I just think a lot of people use it as a visual specific term. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's, it's inherent not. in your in your focal length uh, of your telescope. Exactly. Yeah. And the focal length of your eyepiece or therefore the, uh, the size of your sensor and your camera will give a different field of view depending on that size of the sensor too. So that uh, that affects magnification as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it would be your apparent field of view that would be the thing that would decide your magnification. So, if you, um, how how do you calculate magnification? Let's start there. Yeah, well, I just want to like give a quick rundown on what magnification even is, too. Like for those sure. who may not know, magnification is simply how many times more zoomed in um, you're seeing something compared to your naked eye. Like your naked eye would be. Is it one X? Yeah, it'd be one X magnification I, I think or so. zero. I never actually thought about one X or I guess zero. So. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. I but don't basically, know. really low, right? <laughs> I think a magnification um, of one would just be no change at all. So yeah, yeah. Right. So that your eyeball is one. Yeah. So when we're talking about magnification in telescopes, you know, sometimes you'll hear of magnifications of like a hundred X or two hundred X. So you're seeing things much, much, much more zoomed in than your eye can see them with your naked eye. Um, but anyway, to calculate magnification, it's it's really simple. You just take the focal length of your telescope and then you divide that by the focal length of your eyepiece. Um, so eyepieces also have their own focal length. You'll see it as a number um, written on the side of the eyepiece. So, you know, if you have a, a 500 millimeter telescope and a five millimeter focal length eyepiece, then your magnification is a hundred X, hundred times. That's right. In inherent in magnification is narrower fields of view. And it's a bit of a, a lot of beginners, especially join the hobby, thinking they need a telescope that's, that is characterized primarily by magnification. When you ask a, a beginner, many beginners, what kind of telescope they got, they'll tell you that they got one that has like a thousand power or something, right? Um, and that just comes from the way it was sold to them as a marketing uh, idea, depending on where you bought it from. This may be old school now. Like I remember back when I was a kid, this is what used to be the, the thing with the Tasco refractors and reflectors and things like that, it would always be a thousand power written on the box. Um, but really you'll find most amateur astronomers don't use high magnifications. If I'm using a hundred power, I'm pushing it right. Um, on a given, a given night, because, um, I got to have some pretty good seeing to see anything with a hundred power because it not only magnifies what's in the image plane and spreads it out. It's making my, my galaxy or my planet 
bigger in my eyepiece, but it's also making it fuzzier. It's spreading it out more. And I'm magnifying all of the air in between me and that planet. So if I've got a, a, a turbulent night with lots of uh, uh, atmospheric bubbling and stuff, I'm going to get all of that as well magnified a hundred times. So it's not always a very desirable thing. So you want to dial it back if you've got a bad seeing night on some lower magnifications. And if you've got a camera, it all comes down to your pixel scale. So if you've got a camera that has, I don't know, so many arc seconds per pixel and your pixels are so many microns thick and you've got so many pixels across the image plane, you can just add that up in millimeter, convert that into millimeters, and you can figure out your magnification there. It won't, uh, you'll have some inherent magnification based on the uh, focal length of your telescope and the image diameter, that your, your apparent image diameter in your in your camera so that's one way you can figure it out um you don't necessarily if you put an eyepiece in between you and the camera that's called prime focus i think prime projection or something eyepiece projection Mm -hmm. and that'll then you can still do the whole regular magnification thing as well so don't get caught up in magnification but understand that it is related to the focal lengths of all your optical elements that you're using and uh, as Brian said, it's just a way of, of saying how big is this going to be um, in, your, in your image or eyepiece. So. Yeah. And Tony, you were mentioning the, the term seeing there a couple of times. you want to explain in a little more detail what seeing is and how it affects magnification? Sure. So it's just a, it's just a, a measure of how much your image, is, how much you can resolve on a given night based on your atmospheric conditions. So if you've got a night with five arc second seeing, um, then you, it means that your pinpoint of light is probably going to be smeared across five arc seconds um, in an image. Or if you're looking at, you know, it'll probably be just boiling in an eyepiece if you're looking at it that way. Um Five arc seconds is pretty bad for imaging. Uh, most people can get sub sub arc sub arc second seeing, which is ideal. In some some deserts on Earth, certainly in places like Hawaii and Mauna Kea, have sub arc second seeing, where you wherever you see major observatories being built, you can be sure the atmosphere is pretty good. Um, so, but but most of us, I'm not that familiar with a lot of cameras these days. But I think most people aren't they, Brian, working around two to three arc second seeing, depending on like if you go to you, you go out to uh, uh, the OPT telescope out in the desert. Um, what are you, what you're seeing like out there? Yeah, it's about two to three arc so seconds. Two to three is pretty average. darn good. Yeah. yeah. I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and I was lucky to get five, right? So, oh, really? Um, but just because it's right next to the mountains. There's the all mountains, this, yeah. yeah. And there's all this. <laughs> I'll just tell a real quick story about this. There's also a thing called dome seeing, which – if you're dumb in your in your observatory design, uh, you have to cope with this. And the University of Colorado, where I went to school, has this mandate. It's a beautiful campus, right? Just gorgeous buildings. And it's all built, every single building, out of this nice Colorado flagstone, right? It's these nice flat rocks that, you know, nice brown shades. And they're just, it's just gorgeous stuff. Well, they built the Summers Bosch Observatory out of that flagstone. And, you know, it's this flag is these gorgeous uh, column of flagstone with a dome built on top of it well as you can imagine what does stone do when it heats up in the day uh and it gets dark and cool it just radiates its heat all night long causing all of these eddies and currents to form inside the dome so so basically it didn't matter if you had a perfectly clear night outside inside the dome, the air was boiling and rolling and just <laughs> blowing everywhere. So they came up with this really, um, ob- obnoxious system of fans and doors. They had to open up to get all that. St- and you had to do it well before you started observing a couple of hours or maybe an hour before you started observing to get all that equalized, uh, and figured out a way to, because the stones are just going to radiate all night long. Um, so you had to figure out a way to get your situation so that you could actually observe what you were seeing in the night sky that night. So there's a thing called dome seeing, which is just a, a thing that happens inside or underneath your dome. Not a lot of us have built in observatory domes. Most people do roll off roofs and that kind of stuff. And they make them out of wood, which equalizes pretty, pretty quickly. But if you've got a concrete pad that got hot all night long, then you might be careful about, you know, 
radiating from that concrete for several hours after dusk. But um, and uh, your telescope can also affect seeing too. You know, if you have a closed closed tube design like a catadioptric telescope, like a Schmidt Cassegrain. Uh, most commonly, like the Celestron Next Star SE series, or those closed tube designs, they too can kind of irradiate their own heat um, slowly over the course of uh, the first hour or so that you're you're observing. So, you know, if you're taking your hot telescope for you know that you had at least at room temperature inside, and then you go outside and it's you know 20 or 30 degrees outside, so a difference of about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, you're going to see some of that heat radiating off of the telescope and it's going to affect your view, too. So, yeah, there's all sorts of little things that can affect your your seeing, whether it's local or atmospheric, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. And which is a great segue into this next uh, set of terms here between a refractor and a reflector and a catadioptric. Um, mm. uh, you want to you want to go ahead and take that? Yeah, sure. So all telescopes pretty much fall under these, at least optical telescopes fall under these three categories. Um, There's refractors, which refract light by bending it through glass lenses. There's reflectors, which reflect light by bouncing it off mirrors and bringing it into focus that way. And then there's catadioptric, uh, also known as compound telescopes that use both refractive and reflective elements, so lenses and mirrors basically, um, to bring that light into focus as well. So those are the three main categories of telescopes. Just about every telescope you go you know, buy to use is gonna be one of those three, so. And they all have strengths and weaknesses, but we won't get into that right now. We yeah. talked about it basically <laughs> almost every episode of this podcast. <laughs> we have something to say about something related to that. But uh, yeah. yeah, in order to get rid of any kind of uh, tube seeing or tube uh, issues with, with this, you just just let it sit out for a while uh, before you let it equalize to the outside surroundings and you'll get rid of all that stuff. Some really big telescopes some, some uh, have fans on the bottom of the uh and the bottom of the tube to blow uh, laminar air across the telescope objective. So I've seen that mm-hmm. too. Okay. Um, so what about doublets, triplets, and quadruplets? What's all that? <laughs> yeah. So those are those are subtypes of refractor telescopes, like we were just talking about. So refractors, they're you know similar to like a camera lens in which they use glass lenses to bring the image into focus. So doublet, triplet, quadruplet, that just differentiates between how many lens elements are used inside that telescope. Obviously, a doublet is two, triplet is three, and a quadruplet is four. So um, it's not always the more elements, the better, but um, at least from the jump from doublet to triplet, there's a huge jump in quality there. So... um, it can bring all the colors into focus at an even plane versus a doublet, uh, which can only bring two colors out of the three main colors, red, green, and blue. Yeah, the spectrum is your is not your friend really with uh, with a lot of these refractors. You just every you're constantly trying to keep the colors tightly focused, all in the same wavelengths. They're all different wavelengths, but you want them to call converge in a nice spot and they don't want to so you have to because they're different wavelengths you have to do all this other stuff with the optical elements and designs to make them both wide field and be able to collect a lot of light and um all you know coatings we didn't even get on the coatings and all this stuff that you put on these things so yeah but that just you know you're right i, I agree more does not equal better <laughs> in some of these yeah. cases yeah. Okay, so um, I just want to go through quickly some of these because I'm running out of time. But uh, altazimuth versus, versus equatorial. What's the right. difference between those two? That, that's a mount design, right? You were talking about mounts. Yeah, so it's a t- it's a telescope mount design. It's you know what the telescope sits on top of to move the telescope in different directions. So altazimuth, it sounds like a altitude altitude azimuth is its full name. It sounds kind of complicated, but it's actually really simple. It's just literally left, right, up and down movements for the mount. So, you know, if you have a telescope and you're looking to observe visually, uh, it sounds like it makes the most sense to just, you know, use an Altaz mount that you can go left, right, up and down. An equatorial mount kind of does the same thing, but it's aligned with uh, the celestial pole so that you can 
actually move along the same axes that the Earth is spinning around. So that's really helpful for astrophotography in particular, where um, you need to be able to track the night sky for long periods of time to be able to take long exposures. Um, with an alt-as mount, you can track the night sky, but you start to get uh, your stars start to get elongated over longer periods of time due to something called field rotation. Uh, I'm not going to get into that, but um, an equatorial mount corrects for that by being able to track uh, along the same axes that the Earth spins around, and therefore you can, in theory, as long as everything's working right, you can expose for just about as long as you want. You can go 10 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that to be able to gather exposures of really faint objects out there in space. The I'll just add to that. In one system, the altazimuth, you're trying to correct for two axes, whereas in equatorial, you only have to correct for one if you're perfectly polar alignment, polar aligned. And so um, mm -hmm. it's a little more complicated with altaz. Altazimuth telescopes are really good for point and shoot kind of things where you just look in and you're moving the telescope around like a Dobsonian. Um, <clears throat> and equatorials are really much better for um, imaging. So yeah, there's a lot to be said there, but we're going to, I want to move, I want to jump ahead. Uh, I just, I want to talk about Barlow's and telecompressors real quick because objectives and diagonals and all this stuff. Um, I think we've, we've used these terms in the, in the conversation here, but I want to jump to Barlow's and telecompressors because that relates to focal length. What do they do? Right. So there's, there's Barlow's and tele-extenders. Those are- I'm sorry, tele-extenders. I said tele-extenders. Yeah, no, th that's okay. There's, they're kind of similar. Um, they're really similar actually, but basically they just add another lens in between your eyepiece and your telescope and it can magnify the view by an extra two times. So, you know, let's say um, your total magnification for your eyepiece and telescope is 100X. If you put a 2x Barlow in there, you can actually have 200x. So it extra magnifies your whole view. And that's, you know, the opposite of that is a reducer, which I guess we can get to in a second. Yeah, go ahead and say, well, you, that's just something that, so the, a Barlow uh, basically plays with your focal length a little bit to give, they're, they're characterized in numbers, 1.5x, 2x, 3x. That just tells you how much it increases your magnification by. And it does it by slightly extending the focal length uh, of the telescope uh, through the focuser <clears throat> and the tele, um, well, telecompressor is, was the right term. I mean, that's the term that does the opposite, right? It, ex it reduces your focal length. Oh right? yeah. 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 So, so yeah, I wasn't totally off there, but that's the opposite of a Barlow. Um, right. Right. And it just reduces your magnification. And those are something like if you've bought yourself a, a Schmidt-Cassegrain with a 2,000 millimeter focal length and you want to do something a little bit wider field, you'd throw in one of these uh, to give yourself some some wiggle room on the on the field of view, right? Yeah, totally. It's worth mentioning too that, you know, these Barlows or tele-extenders and then on the other hand, you have reducers and tele-compressors, they, they have their limits, right? You know, you can't just throw like a 10 times Barlow on, on a telescope and get a good view. A thousand um, power. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah, they're kind of limiting and it, it depends on the telescope, but I would say, you know, maybe a two X or maybe even at most a three X Barlow is, is the max you'd really want to go um, for most applications. And then on the other hand with reducers, it also depends on, you know, what kind of telescope you have and if they're, you know, good or Good compatible with uh, reducers, but you know I'd say the most you can really get uh, for the majority of telescopes anyway is about 0.5, so half of the total focal length. Uh, that's a, there's an exception to that with Schmidt Cassegrains, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well. Yeah. Uh, we are going to. I'm going to have to go ahead and, and cut us off at this point because we are we, we're into our full hour here, but we and we still have a lot more to talk about. So Brian, I'm sure we, we can get you to come back and we can cover some more of these terms. Like we didn't talk about sidereal time, we didn't talk about see uh, uh, some of these things like magnitude and and the different kinds of co uh, catalogs that are out there. So we will. You want to come back and we'll maybe talk about do do another part of this. No, I'm good. No, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah I had it with you, man. I had it. I went out of this podcast. God, how did I get it caught in this? Okay. <laughs>
Oh, yeah, man, absolutely. I'd love to come back. No, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, it's. I mean, this was fun. I really appreciate you taking time out to talk to us. Brian Fulda, he's the uh, SEO product specialist at OPT, but he also does all the, the teaching at, at OPT University. And we want to convey some of that knowledge to you guys. So uh, we'll be coming back and doing this some more. We'll also uh, probably be doing some topics like future of amateur astronomy and all this kind of stuff together as well. So thank you, Brian, for taking time out to join us. And Dustin will be back also. Uh, we'll be recording another podcast with him uh, later this week. So uh, he'll be joining us to talk about whatever we decide on yet, which we haven't done yet. So we will uh, let you know when that, when that episode comes out as well. So on behalf of Brian Fulda, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you so very, very much for taking time out to talk to us about astronomy and the love of the night sky. And we'll see you next time. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>